0: Welcome to Industry Insights, the EFM podcast presented by the European Film Market of the Berlinale. This season of Industry Insights, the EFM podcast puts a spotlight on highly topical and trend-setting industry issues, creating a compass for the forthcoming film year. The year-round podcast is produced in cooperation with Goethe Institute and co-funded by Creative Europe Media. My name is Yasmin Kanji and I'm a Canadian-based film director, the host of the film podcast Breaking the Fourth Wall, and the Chief Executive Officer of Films of the Cause, a consulting firm for authentic storytelling practices. I also happen to be an alumni of the Doc Toolbox program. In today's episode, all the speakers were part of the EFM Toolbox program. This initiative aims to endow producers from marginalized, equity-deserving groups and from the global south, creating pathways into the international film industry by eliminating barriers and providing them with the market intelligence, business tools, and connections needed to navigate the international film market more effectively. Our speakers are Darcy McKinnon, Gilbert Mirambeau Enoch Jorgensen, and Rola Tahir. Darcy McKinnon is a documentary filmmaker based in New Orleans. She was part of the Doc Toolbox in 2021. She is known for her community work in the south of the US, recently receiving a visionary award at the Doc Gala. This year, she will be a workshop leader of the Toolbox program. Her work has been on POV, Cinemax, and Hulu, and has screened at Sundance, Tribeca, South by Southwest, and more. Darcy is an alum of the Impact Partners Producing Fellowship and the Sundance Institute Creative Producing Fellowship, and a recipient of American Documentaries Creative Visionary Award in 2023. Gilbert participated in the 2021 Fiction Toolbox program. He's a producer, writer, and activist based in Haiti. For years, Gilbert has been working on his first feature film that he co wrote and produced, Kidnapping Inc., selected to premiere at Sundance in 2024. This is the first feature film from Haiti that will be screened at Sundance. Gilbert is an alumni of several producers' labs, such as The Fiction Toolbox at EFM, Open Doors at Locarno, Producers Under the Spotlight at Cannes, and Eurodoc. Inuk is an Indigenous producer and writer-director currently based in Sweden, but mostly working out of Greenland. He was part of the 2021 Native Fellows. Inuk is a voting member of the European Film Academy and the vice chair of Film GL, the organization representing Greenlandic filmmakers. While he has his own praise for his films, he has been teaching film for more than a decade and has been involved in several film workshops and festivals all around the Nordic countries helping young people learn about filmmaking. Rola is an independent filmmaker and director of photography based in Toronto. Rola's first short experimental film, Sira, was selected to screen at the 43rd Toronto International Film Festival. She is currently in pre-production of her first feature film, Jude and the Gin, funded by Telefilm's Talent to Watch and New Dawn Film Fund. She brought this project to the Toolbox program. She's the artistic director of the Toronto Arab Film Festival and a strong advocate for Arab filmmakers. It's a very impressive lineup of speakers for today. So I'm really excited to jump into the discussion. So I'll start off with Gilbert and I'm really curious to know, how would you characterize your company's current position within the film industry? And what do you feel distinguishes it from others?
1: Uh, hmm. my company Musca Films uh, was founded in two thousand thirteen. It's a sister company of Musca Group, which is a production, the le- a leading production company in Haiti. We've been trying to do films. When I say trying, because we have no help at all, neither from the government nor from the private sector. There's no public funding locally. And internationally, unfortunately, Haiti has no international treaties. So it's hard for us to find funding just to make films. Beside that, there's no school. There's no movie theaters. There's no critics. There's there's basically nothing. So my company is probably the only one. There are others that are trying and uh, probably two or three. And in the current cinematic landscape, uh, we produce our first film, Kafu, that won many prizes and awards around the world. And we have our second feature uh, that's going to be premiered at Sundance. It's a big thing. It raised the bar for most of the future generations. And hopefully, it will inspire others. However, it's 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 quite difficult. It's quite difficult. So we'll see what happens next after Sundance. Uh, maybe we'll have some couple of uh, studios or executive producers, but currently it's it's difficult for us. Uh. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you for sharing and congratulations. It's an amazing feat for sure. Thank you. Darcy, I'll ask you the same question.
2: Um, thank you. And yeah, congratulations, Gilbert. I can't wait to see your film and I'll be at Sundance. So thank I hope you. to see it there. <laughs> Um, So I live in New Orleans, Louisiana, which is in the Gulf South, deep south of the United States. I'm originally from Florida. I started working in film in the Bay Area after college and um, really wanted to return and make films here. Um, You know, privilege and lack of privilege is relative. And I think I'm very well resourced because I live in the United States and we have a lot of support systems. But I moved to New Orleans uh, 23 years ago. With uh, as a dumb, uh, ignorant uh, child in my early twenties, and thought that you could just like make films because you did it in the Bay Area, and I should be able to do it, you know, in the place where I want to be, and really had a hard realization of how what the lack of, of capital infrastructure, human in- infrastructure, all the things Gilbert indicated, although we do have movie theaters in New Orleans, and two things: one, uh, Hurricane Katrina is where I call, what I like to say radicalized me because I realized for how long. Filmmakers and predominantly white male filmmakers from uh, the coasts of the United States came to New Orleans and to the American Deep South to to take pictures and to tell stories from this place and when we were evacuated and unable to come home we saw those people being given access to our space and to tell our stories and so from came back from Katrina although I wasn't a practicing filmmaker at the time I was a teacher really determined to cultivate local storytelling and I've been lucky enough to see over the past 20 years both with the decentralization of the economy around filmmaking and with the um, decentralization of the technology around filmmaking, that we've grown a really beautiful and strong independent film community here in New Orleans. And I try also to work in that and also throughout the Deep South and our surrounding states like Arkansas, Mississippi, and Alabama, who don't have those resources and infrastructure, and to just support filmmakers who are from this place to tell their own stories um, in those communities. And I've been lucky to be able to do so. And I'm, I'm happy to be able to make a living. I think that's a privilege as, as well.
0: Thank you, Darcy. It's very important work. Uh, Inuk, I'd love to hear from you next.
3: All right. So um, I'm a Greenlandic filmmaker um, based in Sweden. Uh, I, um, I have a background in short films, um, but lately I've been working more and more with... Um, with uh, consulting my fellow Inuit uh, filmmakers or people from, especially the Kingdom of Denmark, who, who people who want to come to Greenland and and tell stories. So I think the work that uh, that I do as an artist myself kind of mixes quite well with um, the role that I have um, representing uh, Film GL, the Greenlandic Film Makers Association. But just just like you said, uh, Gilbert, we don't have like any film infrastructure, so. Um, film g l as an organization kind of represents what you could i wouldn't call it a film institute but definitely the the foundation the way to get in touch with greenlandic filmmakers and and what we're experiencing these years is that there's a huge resurgence or there's a huge interest in um in um Western people wanting to tell Inuit stories. And lately, things are definitely getting better because we, what we are finding now is that um, a lot of people want to at least have some authenticity in in the way that they tell our stories, basically. So um, from from a Greenlandic perspective, we're very happy to be contacted so we can be part of the stories that are told about us. We usually have this distinction about uh, films about Greenland and films from Greenland. And I, as a filmmaker who is also um, active in filmmaking, I I see my my job as twofold, both as a representative of of my own work, as I think we all are, as artists, but also helping the community where where I'm based.
0: Thank you, Anak. Uh, Rol, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, my production company
4: is actually quite young. Um, I incorporated last year. My company's called uh, Kenya McCann um, Films, and. While I incorporated the company as a necessity to produce my first feature film, uh, which has been a long journey uh, in development, it took me about seven years to get to, to this place. What really sort of catalyzed me to to use the production company beyond my just my own work is the glaring dearth of producers here in Canada, uh, especially ones that are willing to take risks with emerging and first-time filmmakers, even if you have some funding secured. I had a really, really hard time finding a producer. And so I created this company not only for my own films, but also to help other, specifically Muslim creatives, tell their own stories um, from um, a Muslim lens. And the company's sort of mantra is sort of unwavering vision uncompromising, because what I find happens here in Canada and has been happening for many years is once you get to a certain point and you're looking to scale up your work, the industry, or at least executives in the industry, feel like challenge you with your vision and what you're trying to say and sort of the characters you want to portray and how you want to portray them, especially if you're an emerging and first-time filmmaker, because they think Muslim narratives or Arab narratives or women narratives should look a certain way or should be constructed a certain way which is something that I'm constantly fighting against and I hope to through my production company to give others the um sort of the strength and stamina they need in order to cultivate their own voices and vision in a really authentic way but also take their place within the industry because It's a combination of, yes, opportunities have to be there, and there are some opportunities, but we also have to, we have agency and we have to really stand our ground. And I think it just takes others to see people doing that in order to feel emboldened to also do it themselves.
0: Yes, thank you, Rola. As an emerging Muslim Canadian filmmaker myself, I resonate with a lot of what you just said. So thank you. I I feel like each of you have already alluded to what I'm hoping we can start uh our discussion with the idea of the barriers that we face in the kind of stories that we try to tell in our local context. So you know, given that this is a a podcast for the European film market, and uh, a lot of us are going into the market this year with different projects, could we share some of the strategies involved in entering the international market? And if you could speak a little bit to any barriers you have faced uh, in these settings, any disadvantages as a creative from an equity deserving group, and how do you overcome these barriers? I can speak a little bit. I think my feedback
2: frequently when I submit projects or or try to get connections in the European market is that my stories are too American, which I'm sure there's a glut of American-made films that are headed towards European markets, and I understand that. The stories that I do, I I work on, I hope, are always about specific human stories uh, that intersect with, obviously, all of the policies that we have in the United States and so I'm always looking, I think, for partnerships where people are see the universality and the experience of the humans that we, I make films with, uh, but frequently, I get some of that feedback and then, of course, I think it's it's travel and resources to be seen in these places, um, which is also true just across our country because the United States is so huge, and so i as a producer in the South who chooses to live in the South, I spend a lot of time on planes. Um, or traveling or on Zooms to communicate and to reach out um, for capital and resources um, that are mostly centered in New York and California, in the United States.
1: On our first film, Carrefour, we try to do a mirror effect because, you know, cinema for for me is like a weapon. You can change mentalities, uh, you can educate people, you can uh, raise awareness and of course, you can entertain people. So, uh, me, that's the way I see it. So, I treat serious subjects through humor. And humor, I mean, comedy is not really, it's difficult to be this genre to, to travel, first off. Second of all, another barrier is the language, obviously, because uh, it's in Creole. Mm. And for me, emotion is uh, universal. But these are the two things that always, uh, we have to, to, to face, like the, the language. And of course, of course, the mirror effect, it's because we put in the face, especially for my immediate market, the way we treat women, the way we treat, uh, our, our peers, uh, the way society is functioning. So for instance, our last film, there's a lot of swears. It tends to be quite, not homophobic but we want to show people you guys are homophobic so what do you do after you're seeing this film so we're trying to plant a seed through the film and with that mirror effect so at the first degree when they're analyzing our film in commissions when we're trying to do co-production with between uh co-producers especially in canada for instance like okay there's too much slurs there's too much it's too homophobic it's too sexist it's too this, this this and that and it's like Actually, it's not the first degree. We want people to see, okay, this is how you're treating uh, women or uh, your community. And after the film, what's next? So people tend to push. There's a pushback on our film for this. And the one in Sundance, for instance, I'm sure maybe other uh, festivals, they will react to this. But this is the intention behind it. So, yeah. That's a that's that's another thing for me. That's like sort of a barrier for us.
4: Um, if I may go next, actually, I so my first international experience was actually just last year at Berlinale, and I think I was really lucky because I was part of a cohort that was selected uh, through Canada's Black Screen Office, um, and I met a lot of Canadian peers there as well. And I think what set my experience and the experience of those in my cohort apart was how prepared we were to attend the EFM and the Toolbox and just the festival in general. And I give a lot of credit to the Black Screen Office for preparing us, but also the the Toolbox. Like We had a, a series of rigorous workshops before we we went. And so this is just kind of one thing that I wanted to highlight is that sometimes the opportunities might be there, but the preparation that you need in order to take full advantage of it might not be, especially, again, if you're starting out. And I think that this is more a call out for sort of the industry executives who are creating and making these opportunities available is that it has to be a holistic opportunity. You can't just, you know, give someone a a festival pass and and let them be on their way. These spaces are, there's a lot to take in and uh, they need to be prepared for that.
3: Yeah, definitely. I, I completely agree with you, uh, Rolla. Uh, I think, um, one of the, with my own experience through Toolbox and, um, and when I do my international travels is that, you know, if, if, you may have a past, but it's very nice to have someone else tell you the ins and outs and where to go and, and all this, because I think uh, a lot of the things that that I find, at least is true for myself and my Greenlandic filmmaker peers, is that because Greenland is in a funny place geographically, right? We're part of the, the Nordic countries as a as a former colony of denmark right but we're also very close to to the us and we're not really part of that thing i think one of the biggest partnerships that that we have even though we're not really a part of you know of Turtle island is with um with imaginative in in toronto uh, even though we're actually not geographically but politically a part of, of europe so uh, what i find when a lot of the the work and trying to get co-producers and all that is that we're kind of stuck uh, in the middle somewhere in, in the atlantic between the the united states and america and uh, and and europe but um thankfully there are programs like toolbox and people are at least in europe i find that more and more are interested in opening up to the global south and you know or or arctic indigenous filmmakers so uh, things are lightening off i think
2: Before you move on, I just wanted to co-controller as well, just because I think uh, I spent a lot of my time also doing workshops with Southern filmmakers um, in New Orleans Film Society, Southern Producers Lab, Southern Doc Fund, because I think one of the things that is just... There, I don't think there are any film schools in the world that prepare you for the nature of the industry itself. And then you are in a further disadvantage if you don't have access to events like the EFM, like Gotham Week, like, um, you know, American Film Market or any of the major festivals, which are all not where I'm from, right? So you have to go to Tribeca. You have to go to Park City, which is exceptionally (laughs) expensive. It's a ski town during ski season. You, um, in order to start to, compile the institutional knowledge and understanding, and there's all these subtleties about relationships, about language, about who's greenlighting what, and and institutional connections that are not made apparent. There's no document you can go to. There's no like webinar you can take that's going to connect all of these dots for you. You have to literally go and go multiple years in order to make these connections. And, And if you are not resourced, think about how difficult that is for someone from an island island in the Arctic or an island in the Caribbean or, you know, Arkansas to get the resources together in a given year to make it to Park City, Tribeca and all of these places and and Berlin in order to gain the institutional knowledge in order to later leverage it. It's just, it's so difficult. So I think programs like the, the Toolbox and hopefully conversations like this can help like augment the understanding that it's like, you're not missing something if you don't understand how these things are, are connected. Like it's almost intentionally obfuscatory. And you have to like really work as a collective of filmmakers from your community to make sure everybody knows what's going on and how to navigate these spaces.
0: For sure. Thank you, Darcy. And uh, this conversation, I think, leads really well into my next question, which is, as a producer, each of you plays a key role in supporting local film cultures and new talents. So I'm curious, with all of the work that you do, balancing your own work, you know, as a producer and your projects and also working with your communities, how do you engage in a reciprocal relationship with your local communities as you work?
4: I'm not sure if I have a fully cohesive answer, but I'll start anyway, um, because in 2017, I co-founded and I'm currently the artistic director of the Toronto Arab Film Festival. And Toronto, as probably many of you know, is a city of hundreds of film festivals. And I had been in the city for about 10 years or so, waiting for a pan-Arab film festival to magically emerge, but it didn't. And so I took up the mantle, just like I'm taking up the mantle now of producing other people's work. Um, just because I think there's a there's a need. Oh, well, I know there's a need for it. And so I get a lot of feedback and I have a lot of conversations through the Toronto Arab Film with emerging filmmakers, with various stakeholders, and I try to create opportunities within the festival to sort of respond to that need. We're extremely under-resourced. Uh, Again, there's a lot of opportunity in Canada, but one thing that doesn't exist for film festivals, or at least younger film festivals, is sort of operational support and so it's quite difficult and it's quite slow the work that we're doing but we are engaged with the community and i think to the point where right now even though we're still a small festival within canada and internationally anybody who's looking to connect with arab filmmakers in canada they come to us first and that just goes to show you that there's no other place for that and i'm, I'm very grateful that that it's it's happening but it is it's quite slow Um, And so that's how, and through the Toronto Arab Film sort of work that I do, it informs some of my work as well because I do meet Muslim creatives through that space. But I also, there's a great organization here called the Inspirit Foundation that engages uh, a lot with um, Muslim narratives and shaping those narratives in Canada. But again, all these efforts are still quite nascent and need a lot of support. I think what I'm trying to say is organizations that are small and still kind of doing that work within the community need the support because they have the direct contact. It's kind of like they're the middleman between, again, industry
2: stakeholders and then stakeholders within the community as well. Um, I'll say you'll find me at any event or Zoom or workshop that is about connecting filmmakers in the South with resources. I do a lot of, I do a lot of, uh, you know, the South is this huge, diverse incredibly physically geographically large region that has a lot of shared um, bonds, but also has a lot of differences. Um, And I don't think that I I can speak for the, you know, and even within the South, we say the South and Appalachia as kind of distinct regions as well. But uh, we have a pretty great community in Durham, North Carolina and somewhat strong communities in Miami, Florida, and Austin, Texas, and growing uh, filmmaking communities like in Memphis, in uh, Arkansas, And so I try to be as present as I can be at all of those uh, communities and events and connect myself with those folks. And I do a lot of of Zoom workshops here in New Orleans and and, and in-person workshops here in New Orleans. My challenge, of course, is time because I also have my own projects that I'm trying to shepherd as a producer. There's a small but growing kind of community of Southern producers that are starting to get their first features out the door and, and be more experienced, which is great. So I rely on them, Jamika Autry, Monique Walton, who just got a Film Independent Spirit Award in Texas. There's a few people that are like we can connect and there's a few here in New Orleans as well. I think the big challenge is resources and time. I'm doing that work on top of producing my own films, um, which it sounds like you are too, Aurora. So it's, I think, you know, the history of extraction, there aren't tons of capital resources in most of the places where filmmakers need to tell stories and certainly that kind of field building work isn't as resourced as it could be. And so just trying to support all of that and pull resources uh, to that work as well.
3: Yeah, yeah, I, I I agree with both of you. I'm sitting here nodding my head. Um, I, I find myself as a, as a Greenlandic filmmaker based in Europe, I, I find myself not like a, a gatekeeper for my Greenlandic colleagues, but I hope they see me as, as a as a not a, as a launching pad but as someone who could help them get into contact with um with like european filmmakers and um you know i am um, because it's such a question of resources right i i too is is cheaper than a lot of my greenlandic peers just because i'm based somewhere else geographically which is a shame but i also feel that it that's that for me it's it's both beneficial but it also does, as you guys said, take a a lot of work out of you to to be that... not a trailblazer but but in a way like like maybe the, the first greenlandic uh, filmmaker that a lot of europeans who are interested in, in working with greenland the the first one that they meet and i've been around when i screen my films in europe at least and um, people have, have never seen films from from greenland and i have short films that are a little bit easier to program you know in, at different events so i think i'm i've been quite blessed just by being located somewhere else physically than on an island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah,
4: um, I, I'm just going to jump in and say that um, because Darcy brought up the, the issue of time. And uh, while we're doing all of that, some of us are also um, family members uh, that support their family. And this is one thing that I'm also very passionate about when it comes to uh, sort of uh, changing the film industry, um, however slow, is uh, a little bit more support and consideration for creatives working who have families because it's quite it's almost impossible so
1: yeah trying to find this balance it's quite difficult i'm myself i'm a father of four four girls so and i'm in a house that's like uh we're pro- probably eight or nine and i'm the only guy <laughs> But uh, going back to the community work, uh AD is particular because, like I said earlier, there's no film school. There's not even a parliament these days. We're going through a multi-dimensional crisis, so political, economical, and social. Most of our technicians that we're building that have been working in the last four, five, four of my films, they are leaving the country. It's quite difficult. So myself, I try to do as much as workshops as possible, moderate any films that are being uh, shown in association or every any small stuff I could be present. There are a few small festivals that I they always invite me because we're inful. We're probably maybe 30 or 40 technicians on the island and everything is focused in, in Port-au-Prince. And right now, Port-au-Prince, is, it's kind of hectic because there's a lot of kidnappings and uh, like in 2021, we were the top country uh, per capita with kidnappings. Uh, we have gangs. I mean, they're extending their territories. So making films or even just socializing, we're not even talking films, it's difficult. So giving back and creating these spaces when we can talk about films, it's um, its practically impossible these days, but we're trying, we're still trying, and uh, yeah, you have a small festival, document festi- documentary festival from uh, one of my directors that is, uh, E3, or he created an association for that. I have another fellow friend in the north is uh, pushing for a film festival in the north, so we try, we try, but yeah. Um, Hopefully we'll have a cinema law because there's not even a cinema office in Haiti that will help us create these bridges to create uh, the co-production uh, treaties with other countries. So at the end of the day, within I mean, in our respective communities, we need to tell our stories. We can't let the global north, if I could say that, or the north, tell our own stories. It's important for us to tell our stories in our own ways, in our singular voice, And it's important for our community to see themselves and for our culture to travel as well.
0: Yes. Thank you, Gilbert. It's interesting. We're speaking about barriers. And I think a lot of us encounter barriers within our own context, within our own communities, as well as in the international market when we're taking our projects to somewhere, for example, like, you know, uh, the European film market. Um, so just going back to that topic, as a filmmaker from an equity deserving background, there is this common discussion about who the audience of your project will be, you know, the community or more broader than the community. So how do you typically respond to these questions and navigate conversations about the audience?
3: Wow interesting can i go absolutely. first absolutely <laughs> um i think that too is like walking on a balancing and pin right i think it's a it's a tough balance to have because i think especially uh, uh, what you need to know is that greenlandic uh, film industry uh, the first greenlandic produced film is only like uh, 12 years old or something right the first short film is not even 25 years old so a uh, greenlandic film uh, storytellers within the film media the there, there are pretty much none, and it's, it's very new. So I think a lot of the responsibility that we have as indigenous Inuit Greenlandic filmmakers is that we have to tell stories for 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 our own communities but but somehow try to make them interesting for for an international market and and um I have a short film coming up um uh, shortly I can't tell you much more but I think that too uh, is walking is trying to find the balance between honoring my 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 storytelling heritage but also trying to make it interesting for a more westernized audience and and it is difficult and um, it's a lot of it's a lot of sacrifice that you have to make I think, um, either towards yourself and, and the way you tell your stories or a sacrifice in, in maybe not getting the best screenings in, in the world or maybe not getting that much attention or selling your films. So I think it's it's definitely a challenge.
4: I mean, I'll I'll try to be brief. I think I had a lot of difficulty starting out um addressing that question, to be honest. But I think the more I um the more I participated in various programs and incubators and just pitching and all of that, the more I learned that it's important, the importance of being t- two things, being very specific about who your audience is. And if you, f- if you don't know that, the first step is to actually just know your, your film in and out. And as long as you're authentic to that, I'm a really, really big believer in the film finding its audience. It might not be where you think it is, but it will reach People And I think that being uncompromising, at least to start in order to sort of cultivate your core as a creative, is really important, instead of starting out being shaped by the industry, because you'll lose yourself very quickly. And so if you don't know who your audience is to begin with, just really focus on what the film is, and then see who it connects with. and through that you'll you'll start building your own audience and, and they'll come to you actually for because they'll know what you're what you're all about basically. So I, I really just want to make it clear that it's really important to know what you're trying to say and how you're trying to say it. And I found that because I've made a few short films before this feature, there's the themes of the film and the content and the narrative, but there's also how you tell it. There's the aesthetics and the form the formal parts of it. And these can be speaking to two different audiences, and that's great because, you know, your story can be very specific to, let's say, my story to like a Sudanese Muslim woman, immigrant, but then the formal part of the film can be inspired by the French New Wave or something. And so that will speak to a completely different demographic, right?
2: I think, Rola, well, I would want to, again, Cosine. um, can we be friends because everything you're saying aligns? I think. There is a sense that if you are making stories about underrepresented audiences of any kind, that your job is to kind of like fit into a mold of underrepresentation. And um, I want to support films and filmmakers of all kinds. So I have, you know, small films that are, you know, Super artsy and lyrical. And I have films that are in production right now that I hope to be very big and commercial. I also am in terms of audience as a southerner who also benefits a lot from white privilege, interrogating whiteness and interrogating the history, the history of like terrible policies and terrible white people policies in the South is part of what I'm interested in and how my access can actually where the people in my films are not necessarily representing like the people I I agree with or whose politics or or community I share, which is, I think, a different conversation around impact and audience and how you're trying to utilize your film rhetorically when it comes out into the world. Um, So I think it's it's different for every film where your audience lies. And I don't want us as uh, filmmakers to be like, well, if we make Greenlandic films, they have to exist in this kind of like you know, this primitivist ideology of what native filmmaking must look like, right? Like, I hope that we can all make giant splashy commercial films and crazy experimental lyrical art films. And the comedian Roy Wood Jr. is an EP on a couple of films that, and he came out recently with a, in an interview saying, it used to be that the kind of gatekeepers looked for talent and then helped you build an audience. And now they're looking for your followers, your audience and asking you to define your audience before they've, and And they're not actually interested in your talent. So I think again, like finding out where your creative life is and where you're and what you're trying to say rhetorically as a filmmaker or as, as a filmmaker across time is at the end of the day, across your career and across multiple projects, going to be more important than being able to target an audience quadrant. Not that it's not important to, to know your audience, but I think it's more important to know what you're trying to do and execute it well and then find your audience.
1: Thank you for what you said, Rola and Dorsey. I really, I totally adhere and Am um, I inspired, inspired by it by, as well because for me, it's, in my films, I try to learn something, you know? I want to learn. That's the first thing. And I want to, it's like a conversation to myself. And I'm seeking my own truth. So authenticity is a, is it's, it's important. I don't even think about the audience. I just, I need to, uh, let's say I'm doing a film about kidnapping. So it's affecting me directly, my community. And for instance, my uncle was kidnapped twice. So for that, I'm connected to that. And then the emotions, everybody will understand the emotions. So I don't think about the audience. After, at a second level, when the script is done, because I'm also a writer, then I kind of tweak it down to make it like, uh, you know, a certain part to fit, let's say, the the length in the scene. Or if we're talking about fiction, a documentary is something else as well, totally. But... Like, I, I'm, I'm going to be brief, but like what Rola was saying, you have p- to be true to yourself and authentic, uh, and authentic, and authenticity is the key for me.
0: Yes, I completely agree. And I always believe that the more authentic and specific your story is, that the more universal it becomes, and the more the human emotion really becomes the focus of your project. And of course, then that creates the audience. So to wrap up, I have a final question. What is your work's long-term vision regarding its influence and role within the film industry?
1: Hmm. (laughs) The tricky one. (laughs)
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Well, if I start, um, may I make film to become immortal? I want to be remembered for my films, not Gilbert, but the stories that I'm telling. And stories, they are universal, just like you said. Uh, They have to come and, like, uh, you know, they just grip you, you know? Uh, If we were uh, following these molds, like these uh, classic movies that we know that are amazing, they would not be amazing because they're eternal, they're immortal. So I want to be remembered for the films that I'm I'm making— and how they probably will plant some seeds in people uh mine and maybe change my immediate community, of course, and maybe have a uh, bounce back on other uh, communities in the world. So that's the way I see
2: it. Um, I'm making films. I think I go back to that Katrina moment. I'm making films because I don't want to live in a place where the only stories told of that place are told from people who aren't from it. And I'm tired of seeing... Especially because it, within the United States, the South is much vilified as a place. Um, people are, will freely talk about how terrible it is and how it could be cut off from the rest of the country. And, um, I, I don't feel that about the place that I love and the people who, who make it up, even when some of them are terrible. Um, so for me, it's about creating, I think, Gilbert, it's beautiful to say immortal. I'll say, I think I think we're making a historical record that reflects the reality and the complexity and the nuance of these places that are my place. It's a really big question. I think for me, just to look at
4: it from a very kind of individual lens, filmmaking for me is a way of self-actualizing. Um, and I hope that you know, through doing that and, and others sort of observing and participating in what I'm doing and, and hopefully how I'm changing um, things within the industry, that they are able to do the same um, within their own lives. So make the films that are truly authentic to their their experiences, but also just what they want to say and to help them self-actualize as people.
3: Yes, I, I agree with all of you. I think it's I think as as storytellers we, we we have an obligation to to look within ourselves when we tell our stories and I think and I think one of the things that I find very interesting that I that I see popping up all around the world through um, initiatives like the EFM Toolbox is that at least, even for someone who is considers himself uh, indigenous and and a minority, at least within a European context, I I find my eyes have been opened to films that I that I did not have a chance to grow up with. I mean, even when I grew up in Greenland, we saw a lot of uh, American Hollywood films. And I think t- today, just being able to watch film from the Sami community, from Muslim communities, I think it's such an important thing. And I am. And I would consider myself um, a very successful person if I could contribute um, in telling stories that are from Greenland and not about Greenland. And I think, to me, that's a huge motivational factor.
1: If I could quickly add to what Darcy said, Uh, thank you for sharing, thank you for saying that since my English is very short but uh, I said immortal but she just said it's, it's exactly what it what means to me it's me I want to spark these difficult conversations through my film and whatever the subject especially based on where we live and like today there's not even a parliament in our country and there's not even the judicial system so if you steal a, uh, like a, an iPhone you're going to go to not even prison, but you go. You go to the police station and you spend four years there, five years, just for an iPhone. So, like you said, it's uh, the complexities, the nuances, and all these things. And through my film, it's important. That's how I want be re- remembered. It's like it, it, I was able to spark these difficult conversations.
0: Yes, thank you so much to all of you. Such beautiful answers for this last question thank you for your insights this was such an enlightening discussion especially for myself i've learned so much and you're all doing such important work both as a producer and in your own community so congratulations and i'm looking forward to meeting you all in person hopefully at efm in february this season of industry insights is produced in cooperation with the goita institute and co-funded by creative europe media please do tune in to future episodes of Industry Insights. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and on the website of the European Film Market. Thanks for tuning in.